start shaking. That's the one where you have to fight back those tears and you remember every smell, every sound, everything. That's that case. You'll never forget that. Where you have no idea what's going on, now you see two children bound in some way that suggests something horrific is happening inside. In fact, what's happening is basically density of memory. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multi-dimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, with my co-host, Francie Hakes. Hi, Jim. How you doing? Good. Well, we're back with Joanne Sutherland, who is a former Clayton County Sheriff's Department deputy and former Clayton County Police Department officer, sergeant. Actually, how you doing, Joanne? I'm good. How are you? Good. Today, we want to talk about one of your worst cases. Have you picked out one to talk about? Sure. What kind of case was it? It is a crimes against children and murder case. Well, and who was the offender? William Nazario. How did you come about getting this case? We actually, myself and two other detectives, were um, in an area trying to find another murder suspect, and we heard a call go out on our police dispatch, and we were really close to the area. So we went to the location, and the call came out as trouble unknown, which means they have no idea what's happening, but they described it that a little girl was sitting on a porch, tied up, and it was a pastor who was making the phone call. Okay. So it just didn't make sense. So that probably raised a few alarms, huh? Absolutely. And what happened when you arrived at the scene? Um, It was like slow motion. Literally, we get out of the car and we're running to the house. You got three detectives, me and two other ones, um, Detective Ward and Detective Helton. And we're running to the house because we see this little girl. She's about 10, 11 years old. And she is bound with duct tape all across her face. It's it's probably from her her eye down to her chin, and then her hands are bound behind her back. Her her uh, ankles are bound, and it's it's like a movie. I mean, you stop hearing stuff, you just go, and you're like, what is happening? So we go, and I get to her first, and I pick her up, and I think who's in the house? Like, what is happening here? And I pick her up and I put her over toward 
a safer area and the other two detectives go in and as I'm looking at this girl, I'm thinking airway breathing circulation, airway breathing circulation, because I want to wow. rip off the duct tape, but she's talking and I'm thinking evidence, but I'm thinking life, like I have to make a decision. Right. And I realized that she is breathing. I got to slow down. I got to think about what's happening, evidence preservation, but what's happening in the house. So the other two detectives, they come out and Detective Ward is actually carrying a four-year-old who's exactly the same, bound in duct tape, zip tied on her, her wrists and her ankles. And I'm thinking, what is happening? So, so he, it's like a movie. She, he went into the house. The other two detectives went into the house while you were taking care of the, the child on the porch. Yes, because my job at that time was to move her to a, a safer place because we're thinking bad guys in the house, like this is a home invasion or something in progress. And Joanne, what strikes me about what you're describing is something that, you know, us regular civilians, unlike Jim, but I'm, I consider myself to have been a regular civilian. I never responded, you know, with a gun to any crime scene. Um, what you're describing sounds like chaos. And how do you keep your cool in a situation like that where you have no idea what's going on? Now you see two children bound in some way that suggests something horrific is happening inside. And now you've got to go inside. You don't know who's there, who's armed, who's not, who's dead, who's not. How do you keep your calm? You take a breath, you do deep breathing, and your training kicks in. And the first priority is life. And then the second is the case. So our urgent is getting her out of the way. Now we have another victim. And as they bring out the second victim, I mean, we're breathing because your whole body reacts to that trauma. You're, you you start shaking. You stop hearing. Those are normal uh, physical responses yeah. to when you're afraid. Yeah, it's a uh, fight or flight response. You have adrenaline pumping through your system. That's why you shake. It's not that you're afraid physically and you're shaking in fear. It's that your body is responding to the need that your your mind is saying that this is a dangerous situation. And then auditory shutdown, uh, that's very common as well in, in police situations. Um, and you said, earlier you said everything slowed down. It was like slow motion. In fact, what's happening is basically density of memory. Um, our brains actually take in all that same amount of information all the time, but we naturally learn to filter most of it out. But when we're in, in a dangerous emergency situation, like in the middle of a car crash or, or something like that, we tend to experience it as slowing down because it's so dense. Every single detail is brought to our awareness, uh, to our conscious, where normally that's kept back in your subconscious. So it's an interesting uh, detail that, that you experienced. Yeah, and, and the, the worst part is being in law enforcement for 21 years, we've seen it, we've done it, we've experienced it. But in this situation, being the detectives, like we have um, khaki pants on and a golf shirt because we're three detectives. We don't have an entry vest like SWAT. We don't have any of that special gear. We are just three people walking around in um, civilian attire with a golf shirt on that says Clayton County Police. And we're going into this situation where it's very active. We pull out the the 11-year-old around the corner. Now Detective Ward brings the second kid out, and I'm thinking, what in the world is happening? Like, who's in this house? 
so she brings the second kid out and she stays here. Well, my victim says, where's my sister? Where's my other sister? I'm like, baby, what are you talking about? She tells us there's a third kid. Wow. So we go back into the house and now more units are coming, of course. And we're trying to, we're, we're trying to assign tasks to everybody who's coming because now I put out a call on the radio that all of CID, the entire unit needs to show up at this call and we need more help here. So everybody in their um, uniforms are coming and, and patrol cars. Well, now they go in the house and now our task is to find a third kid. Okay. So right now you're basically in panic mode because there's supposed to be a third kid and you can't find them? Yes. So Detective Helton goes into the house and I told him, I said, there's a third kid. You need to go find this kid. And he is just looking through the house, under the beds, the closets, everywhere frantic, and he can't find her. But he does find the mother of the two girls that he that they just brought out murdered and stuffed beside a mattress and a wall. She had been stabbed to death. Wow. And where where was that body located? In the master bedroom, beside the mattress and the wall, hidden between those two and covered up with clothes. So you've got two children with duct tape. Bound and gagged, right. hogtied, basically. Saying there's another, where's my sister, where's my sister? Now you've got a dead woman in the house, which is obviously a situation where... If it's stabbing, there's a lot of blood, and and now you know there must be an offender somewhere on the loose. Yes. Right. And what's the what's this victim's name? The the murdered victim is Korean Bowden, was the mother of the little girls. And how old was she? Mid thirties. Uh, and obviously, at that point, they were able to determine she was already dead. Any idea how long? Um, our investigation revealed that it actually happened just after school, and we didn't find her or the girls until three days later. Oh, my God. So you've got little girls bound up in a house with their dead mother for three days? Yes. Wow. I have a question for you, though. You said that the 911 call came in from a minister. How did that happen? Well, what's funny is the incident actually occurred Friday, but we didn't know that. The pastor didn't see them on Sunday, so he went to the house on Monday just to check on the family because they didn't go to church. Wow. But where was he when you arrived at the scene? He fled because he thought it was an active scene and there was bad guys in the house. So he called 911 and drove around the cul-de-sac out of the road to wait for the police so we could get there and secure the house. But but yet he saw the child sitting on the front porch all bound up? Oh, it's horrifying. Jim, it was literally her hands had swelled up. I mean, she was beaten. I mean, he was terrified. He was absolutely terrified. Well, he wasn't a trained law enforcement officer. And this is another lesson for the people out there, the listeners, to hear. Um Law enforcement officers have to run to the danger, uh, not away from it. And uh, it's a very, very difficult job. Very difficult. Um, so what happened after you found the mother's body inside? After we did that, we realized that we had a third kid. I asked 
asked the little girl, you know, who did this to you? And she said, my dad, William Nazario, N-A-Z-Z-A-R-I-O. And I was thinking, this girl has practiced this for three days. Like, that's the only thing she could say was, you know, how to spell this guy's name. And once we realized who he was, then, of course, our officers and detectives started researching him, found out he had a, a vehicle. We put out an Amber Alert for the third girl and this guy's vehicle. And up in Ackworth, they actually had the vehicle on Saturday, but they didn't know. And he had dumped it on the interstate. And once the Amber Alert started getting on the news is when he said, hey, call 911 and tell them that that you're here. He said to who? To the third victim. Okay, how old was she? 13. And so he had her, he'd abducted her and bought her upstate? He did. And what happened then? Did she call 911? She did. She called 911 and said, hey, I just saw my picture on the news. He told me to call. That agency went over there to that hotel room where they were, and our suspect was um, drinking antifreeze at the time. So he was trying to kill himself. That's what he said, but he really wasn't. What do you mean by that? Um, He had actually diluted cranberry sauce and had um, antifreeze there, but he would never drink all of the antifreeze. He'd have a tiny little sip and then drink all the uh, cranberry juice. So he told them that he was trying to kill himself, but it was later discovered in the doctor's records that he didn't even have enough in his system to register. Really? So when when they got to the hotel where he was holding the third child, was there any kind of standoff? Did he just let them in? Was he armed? Tell us about that. Um, he actually had opened the door for the little girl to be outside when the other officers showed up. And then they got there obviously extracted her safely, and then he gave up willingly. I mean, he was just um, a compliant suspect. And so what did you end up finding out happened here? I mean, this sounds like a horrendous, long-term, outrageous set of circumstances. Uh, Luckily, I actually had turned the scene over to another detective, and I was able to fly up to Ackworth with a supervisor and interview this guy ourselves. Um, went into the hospital room, the emergency room, and I was thinking I was getting a deathbed confession. That's what I was thinking. He was so disgustingly arrogant. He said that it all started on Friday when the mom walked the girls to the bus stop and the little 11-year-old wanted to watch something in the morning for cartoons. And he got mad and the mom and him had a discussion about what the girl wanted to watch on TV. So after mom brought the kids to the bus stop, mom and him decided that they were going to argue back and forth. Well, he just started beating the mom and stabbing her and killed her. Well, then he panics because the kids are all in school. He goes to the school and picks up all three kids, brings them back home after they hit, after he hid the mom. And the 11 year old was like, where's my mom? And she knew something was wrong. She said her gut, I mean, she knew something was wrong. So she started running through the house and he beat her. He picked her up by the ankles and would smash her face into a stone wall, like a big stone fireplace wall. And like he was swinging a baseball bat. And then she later said that he tried to rape her and she would fight him off. 
And then that's why he would punch her and punch her. I'm hoping that these girls got treatment at the hospital and... Were they taken to Children's in Atlanta, Joanne? They, they, they were taken to our um, local hospital here and deferred to Children's, yes. And what happened? Um, he actually, in the hospital room, confessed that he stabbed the mom, went and picked up the kids from the school, kind of freaked out because he didn't know what was going to happen. And then the 11-year-old, he said, was trying to start a fight with him. So that's why he beat her. So he's claiming that it was self-defense, why he beat the crap out of his 11-year-old daughter? Yeah. Yeah. What a piece of garbage. The confession's pretty amazing. But can you tell us what happened to the kids? Can you tell us what happened when they were treated? Yeah, the kids were treated. Um, That 11-year-old actually is one of the saddest cases. Um, She still has PTSD from it. She still has anxiety from it. All of the law enforcement, all of the medical staff that I'm in direct contact with, that is that one case that you'll never forget. Tell us about that. Did they? Did the girls recover physically, Joanne? Uh, physically, yes. There was no dismemberment or anything like that. But with that type of trauma and your mother being murdered in the home and then the 11-year-old, I mean, savagely beaten, just one of the worst beatings I've seen, not only on a grown-up, but... Uh, a kid never seen anything like it in my life um i can still like that that's that one case that if detective ward or detective helton and i are all together and we start talking about it that's the one where your body starts shaking that's the one where you have to fight back those tears that you remember every smell every sound everything that's that case you'll never forget that heard anything about the child the 11 year old or the four-year-old or the 13 year old i have the medical personnel that still treat her said that the four-year-old is doing extremely well the 13 year old is doing extremely well the 11 year old is better than she was but she will take many many years of treatment um she still can't discuss a lot of the facts that happened during that day but she has now finally told her story up until the beating um she told her story to who to the interviewers and the prosecutors and she's in therapy now she's in therapy now since 2012 so almost five years of therapy and they say every day gets a little bit better well, I mean, our hearts go out to her and, and the other victims and, and of course, Korean Odan, who, who was killed. Um, but I'm sure our listeners as well uh, feel for her and, and for her children. And so tell me something good. Yes. Tell me <laughs> that this guy was convicted. Yes, I was waiting for the, uh, for the light at the end of the tunnel here myself. He was convicted. Um... He actually pled because he didn't want to go to to trial, um, but we, it's, it's actually 30 years in prison, but 
we actually use that to train our law enforcement officers as one of our worst cases, but best cases, because when you feel those things and you feel that empathy for other people, that's when you know that you're doing the job that you were meant to be doing. And that's what we tell them is you may have to see this and you may have to react in this arena. And that's very hard that they're training, that they have to be confident in their training because it will kick in. So you felt like, Joanne, you'd said earlier, but you felt like your training did kick in. You had that sort of, as Jim described it, that fight or flight response, that thing where everything seemed to slow down, where you shook, but your training did actually kick in. Absolutely. What you do is you just take a deep breath and your body calms itself and you realize your body is reacting to training. There's a lot of things I don't remember us physically doing, but my brain was thinking evidence and airway, like I wanted to rip the duct tape off, but I knew don't do that. (laughs) But there's so many things that like after the fact, when we talk about it, we remember certain things and other things is almost like we're sitting there watching it. Well, what's what's interesting that you tell me is that, I mean, it, it amazes me at all that you thought in that moment with that 11 year old all beaten in front of you and tied up with duct tape that that anything besides airway occurred. That to me is a tribute to you as an officer and to law enforcement training in general that you were also thinking evidence because I'm certain that wouldn't have occurred to me in that moment. Thank you. Um, but also the, the other people come in. What was funny is I can remember throwing a notepad. And of course, here I am trying to cut the zip ties off of her and I was afraid to cut her. But I was trying to cut that stuff off and I threw a notepad I just started telling them to start writing and taking pictures. So Mm. as it's all happening, I threw my phone for someone to take pictures. And we have pictures while it's occurring. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's amazing that we get to use that for training now in our police academy. And when I teach crimes against children, the reason that we do the work that we do is that right there. So what did Nazario get in terms of what, what was he convicted of? Um, it was the the homicide of Miss Bowden and the cruelty to children on all three of the children. Wow. And his sentence was 35 years, Joanne? Well, it says, no, no, it's 30 years before he's eligible for parole. So what, what was his sentence? It was life. After 30 years, he could apply for parole. Okay. Do you think that under these circumstances that... He will actually be eligible for, for parole ever. I can tell you from the pictures that we were able to get, which is amazing, to the confession I took in that hospital room. I used my recording device and recorded him. In his word and his arrogant self, absolutely not. There's not a person I believe that would see that video confession and not keep him in prison forever. And let's talk about that because the behavior you're speaking about is very intriguing to me, and that is. He, he tried to go for a sympathy attempted suicide. In other words, he wasn't actually trying to commit suicide, but he wanted people to feel sorry for him. So this fake suicide attempt um, tells me that it, it's very consistent with the arrogance that you then later observe. So tell me, did he? what excuse did he use? Like, How did he try to justify his behavior? That the 11-year-old started the fight with him 
and it was she started the physical fight and i was like are you kidding me so the beaten face of this and he's like well i mean what did you expect me to do i'm like are you kidding me and then the mom he blamed mom because she was defending the kid can watch whatever she wants to watch in the morning before school what's the big deal and so because she was defiant and because the child was fighting with him, he felt justified with this. Just to give our listeners an idea, how how much did the 11-year-old girl weigh? How big was she? Oh, my goodness. 40 pounds, maybe. And 45 pounds. And how about him? Oh, gosh. 210, 220. How tall was he? 5'11-ish. And she was what, three and a half feet tall? Easily, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that sounds like a fair fight. Well, no wonder he pled guilty. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, you'll be around and the daughters will be around in 30 years or 25 years from now, whenever, when he's first eligible for parole, and that they'll be able to make statements um, to prevent that from happening. I think it would probably be a good idea to document those statements now because you never know what might happen to these girls or to you. You might be in another job in another state or something, but it might be a great idea to do videotaped statements from all the daughters so that they can be used and give them to the parole board now um, or at least keep them at your command so that uh, victim statements can be made in the future no matter what happens. That's a great idea. Well, wow, I feel, I mean, like I, I told you on on the break that I, I was sweating at the beginning of Joanne's tale because I just really felt the the panic, the urgency. I could just see that child all wrapped up and beaten on the porch. And so I'm glad it had at least uh, an ending where the children are being treated. They've recovered physically from the trauma, and at least they can go to bed at night knowing that the offender can never hurt them again. Right. One of the most difficult things that I've recognized over the course of my law enforcement career is that, unfortunately, cops and agents uh, and prosecutors see the worst that human beings can do to one another. And it can really jade you. Um, It can really change the way you think about life and... um, how you perceive events in life. How do you balance that out, Joanne? So the last 21 years obviously has been very challenging working these type of cases. You see the worst of the worst. You see women, men, murdered children, the child pornography. I mean, you're watching videos of children being raped and tortured. Um, What I do is I lean on my inner circle. I lean on my supervisors that, They have no idea the types of things that you're ever going to see, that we all need to talk about that, and we all need to be aware of those physical reactions, and those are very normal. It's a normal response not to be okay at the end of a case. It's okay, and if you can speak about that with other people who've been through trauma like that, then they understand it, and it can get you to a better place to where... You're not emotional about it every single time. You'll always feel something. Like I was telling you about the physical reaction when I talk about it, 
if we're together like you, you get teary, you get, you can remember all the sights and the smells and everything that'll never go away. But it, what it'll do is it will lessen. And then we use that as a teaching tool for our other um, law enforcement officers or classes to let them understand why this work is so important. And it takes special people to do this type of work. Yeah, it does definitely. And we want to thank you for doing that work and on behalf of us and on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for calling in and letting us know about these cases. Um, and we definitely wish you luck and our hearts go out to you as you continue to do this um, just very difficult profession. Yes, thank you very much, Joanne, for calling in and sharing that experience with us. It was uh, horrifying fascinating and we're happy that you're still doing this kind of work thank you so much thank you joanne and thank you listeners for listening to best case worst case best case worst case is an xg production produced by jim clementi at empire studios la engineered and edited by terrell parham music by simba sumba and hosted by wondering